I want to begin our study by asking a rather simple question. What is love? Now, if your immediate thought to that question is, baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more, you're totally ridiculous. I am not referring to Hathaway's 1993 platinum dance single, What is Love? Nor am I referring to the opening theme song, of the epic movie, A Night at the Roxbury. Instead, my question centers on the most mysterious of all human experiences, from poets to novelists to musicians, academics, theologians, philosophers, kings and peasants alike. Everyone has struggled to define this crazy little thing called love. The latest to provide a novel attempt at defining love has been Helen Fisher, who is a member of the Center for Human Evolutionary Studies at Rutgers University. For those who don't know, Ms. Fisher is a biological anthropologist, human behavioral researcher, and is considered to be the foremost scholar in the love research community. Not only has she given two different TED Talks on the subject, and if you don't know what a TED Talk is, it's basically a sermon for secular people. But she was hired by Match.com slash Chemistry.com to use her research, her theories, to create a hormone personality-based matching system that would all but guarantee you the perfect date. In her acclaimed book, Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love, Helen Fisher postulates that what we consider to be love is really nothing more than the evolution of three systems in the human brain central for mating and reproduction. The first stage in this process she defines as lust or the drive for sex. According to Ms. Fisher, the biological interactions that take place between people via physical and emotional connections intend to initiate an increased release in your brain of hormones, testosterone and estrogen, which are essential to the sex drive within men and women. From there, stage two commences, which she calls attraction or romantic love. Regarding her theory, what facilitates this drive for sex, stage one, end up being three neurotransmitters, chemicals, being released into the brain as well. Since an increase in testosterone or estrogen activates a stress response, increasing blood flow, that's what results from stage one, in turn, the body releases adrenaline and cortisol. This is why when you're around your love interests, your heart pitters and patters, it flutters, you begin to sweat. In a sense, these simple biological interactions lead to a connection with another that in turn revs up the engine. At this point, serotonin is released into the brain, which not only causes the feeling of love, but leads to a deep longing to be around that person. Why? Well, you're <laughs> hoping to get lucky. When physical, sexual interaction, stimulation finally does occur, the body then proceeds to flood the brain with dopamine, which stimulates this euphoric rush in a person's pleasure centers. Because this is happening in the limbic system of your brain, the body craves repeated behavior. It's an addiction. The third and final step, stage, 
ends up being attachment or a deep feeling of union. Because Fisher's theory postulates that what we perceive to be love exists for the sole purpose of procreation and raising offspring, following sexual interactions, oxytocin, which is also known as the cuddle hormone, is released into the brain to foster a bond or a connection between individuals. Uh, additionally, vasopressin uh, is released, which increases the innate desire uh, to keep one's partner from another suitor, to be monogamous, devoted. Now, the biology of all of these things, the biology behind Helen Fisher's thesis, I have no interest this morning in debating. That to say, there is one huge flaw in her argument. Aside from the fact that marital love exists to yield human oneness from within gender diversity, that marriage and its concept was God separating the genders and then bringing together one man and one woman in holy matrimony. Procreation is the secondary aim for sex. Sex is about oneness. Making babies is the byproduct. With that being said, the Bible presents love as being so much more than just a biological reaction in your brain. Instead, the Bible presents love as a decision of one's will. In the end, relegating love as being nothing more than hormonal or neurochemical reactions based solely upon physical and personality compatibilities between a people with procreation of one's genetic makeup as the aim. Not, not only is that depressing, but you know it explains why so many marriages fail to last and why the sexual revolution within Western culture over, let's say, the last 70 or so years looks more like Planet of the Apes than it does Sleepless in Seattle. So back to our question, what is love? In our attempts to answer this question, I want to take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 29, where we have recorded the beginnings of what is really one of the most unlikely of all love stories. By the end of this morning's message, I hope you realize that real, genuine, lasting love does not exist as an emotion-yielding reactions but is instead a willful action that yields emotions. <clears throat> Let's dive right into the story. Genesis 29, beginning with verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. For a little context, Jacob has had to flee his home because his brother Esau wants to kill him. Esau wants to kill him because Jacob stole his birthright. Jacob's plan, hatched along with his mother, is to find Rebekah's kin who live in Mesopotamia. So Jacob went, he looked, and he saw a well in a field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would gather there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, so he's speaking to the shepherds, My brethren, where are you from? He's trying to find his kin. Well, they said, we are from Haran. Jacob's thinking, fantastic. Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we do. We know him. Jacob says, is he well? They said, he is well. And look, his daughter, Rachel, is coming with the sheep. Then Jacob said, look, it is still a high day. Is it not time for 
the cattle to be gathered together and for the, the sheep to be watered to go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks have gathered together and they have rolled the stone away from the well's mouth. That's when we water the sheep. And the idea here is that this stone protecting the well, the contents of the well, the water, was pretty large and very difficult for someone to move on their own. Continuing our story now, while Jacob was still speaking with him, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near. And he rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and he watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. And he lifted his voice and he wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his fa- her father's relative, that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Now, I love how this scene plays itself out. As Rachel approaches with her flock, she can't help but notice a mysterious stranger sizing her up, staring at her. Imagine then her surprise when this man takes off his shirt flexes, muscles up, to roll the stone from the well's mouth all by his lonesome. He's showing off for Rachel. Now, seeing that Rachel was impressed and giving him some googly eyes as he proceeds to then water her flocks, Jacob decides to go in for the kill. (laughs) In the middle of all this action, we're told then Jacob kissed Rachel. Boom! There's a connection. Jacob is overcome with emotions. And instead of playing it cool, he gets weird, doesn't he? After this magical embrace with this beautiful woman, Jacob, we're told, proceeds to lift up his voice and he starts weeping. He starts crying, sobbing like a baby. And I imagine Rachel is a little freaked out by Jacob's reaction to the kiss, right? I mean, she's thinking, oh no, did I forget to brush my teeth this morning? Do do I have bad breath? Was I a bad kisser? I'm sure she was relieved. When Jacob proceeds to explain who he is, why he's there, why he's overcome with emotion, Rachel then runs off, tells her father Laban. She's giddy with excitement. Verse 13, and it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. So Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. It's reasonable to assume that Jacob anticipated that his stay with Laban would only last for a week or two as he awaited word from his mom, Rebekah, that everything had chilled out, Esau had calmed down, and it was safe for him to, to return. As he waited, Jacob rightfully puts himself to work he's not a freeloader he's helping around laban's house and affords him more time to check out rachel in a twist a few days turn into a week a week into a few weeks into a month still no word from isaac or rebecca and it's at this point that jacob and laban kind of come to the same conclusion that you know this stay might end up lasting a bit longer than anyone had anticipated and so verse 15 laban comes to jacob and he says you're my relative You shouldn't serve me for nothing. Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban, we're told, had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, 
So he said to Laban, I will serve you seven years. I'll work for seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. That's what I want. So Laban said, it is, it, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So done deal. Again, realizing that this temporary stay might turn into a, a permanent dynamic. Seeing that the good old boy was chipping in around the house free of charge, Laban does the honorable thing. Hey, you need a job. Let's make this a little bit more permanent. Name your price. And because Jacob was head over heels with Rachel, but doesn't have the money, you know, to do this the appropriate formal way, to pay the dowry, this hapless Casanova proposes seven years hard labor for the right to marry his love. Now, before we move on, in verse 17, we're provided an interesting detail that's relevant to what's about to take place. While Rachel the Younger was beautiful, of form and appearance, I mean, bada bing, bada boom, I mean, she was a 10, a knockout. We're told, in contrast, that the older of Laban's two daughters, Leah, well, her eyes were delicate. Now, the idea behind this phrase, Leah's eyes were delicate, especially in the immediate context of Rachel's overcoming beauty, was it that Leah was, you know, had poor eyesight? No, that's not what the word means, the phrase means. Instead, it, it, it indicates that Leah was a cause for sore eyes. Basically, Leah was light on the eyes, a swamp dolphin. She was a 50-footer, a brown paper bagger, a butterface. A two o'clock beauty queen. You might say Leia was eye broccoli, grizzled chicken, a jack pine savage. <laughs> Leia had a face only a mother could love. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. They seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. That's a statement, isn't it? These seven years that Jacob is working for Laban, free of charge, they only seemed like just a few days because of the love that he had for Rachel. I want to make a point to all my single ladies and single gents. You know if someone genuinely loves you or is just lusting after you, the way you can tell is if they're willing to wait to have sex before marriage. Like only true love will wait. Meaning, if your man is trying to get into your pants, if he's pressuring you to make concessions you're not comfortable with, if he's so horny he can't respect your boundaries, if he isn't willing to be patient or to wait, then please don't miss what I'm about to say. That person doesn't love you. Instead, they're only interested in what they can get from you. Guys and gals alike. Lust is selfish. Love, it's selfless. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. So he says, it's time. It's been seven years. I'm ready. So Laban gathered together all the men of the place, and they made the feast. So this is a wedding feast, a wedding celebration. And it came to pass in the evening <coughs> that Laban took Leah, his daughter, 
and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob, he says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service, speaking of Rachel, which you will serve with me still another seven years. Now, how ironic, Jacob the heel catcher, that's what his name means, ends up getting tricked by Laban in almost the identical way Jacob had swindled his father Isaac to steal the birthright from Esau. <laughs> Under Laban's directives, Leah veils herself. She pretends to be Rachel. Jacob marries her, gets hammered, consummates the relationship, and then discovers in the morning when he wakes up the ruse. He rolls over, expecting to see the love of his life, and instead, bum, 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 it's Leah sleeping beside him. Jacob thought he was marrying the beauty when in reality he marries the beast. Now, why well, you can rightly understand Jacob's obvious outrage. Like, this was a dirty, unfair maneuver, especially when you considered this guy's just worked seven years under the pretense he's marrying Rachel. But do you notice the justification that Laban gives for why he gave him Leah instead? In verse 26, Laban explains to Jacob that it was illegal for a father to marry off the younger daughter before the firstborn, meaning he was just obeying the laws of the land. I mean, what do you want me to do, Jacob? He says, look at it again. It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In a sense, don't miss this, Laban is telling Jacob, you know, in our country, we actually have respect for the firstborn. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> the burn, right? A little jab. Now, Laban's scheme, he might, might have been given a measure of justification because of the laws of Haran, but his proposed solution to this conundrum, it reveals his true underlying intention all along, doesn't it? He tells Jacob, hey, listen, I know this is a problem. It was the law, man. You should have read up on it. But I got, a, I got a, an idea. You work seven years for Leah. How about work another seven years for Rachel? Deal? Verse 28. Then Jacob did so. And fulfilled her week, so Laban gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob went in also to Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Talk about messed up. I mean, Jacob's bamboozled into marrying Leah. And then in what seems to be like this kind gesture by the master swindler, Laban allows him to marry Rachel, you know, with the caveat, he'll have to retroactively work off her dowry for the next seven years as well. Now, at this point, the following question begs our consideration. In this moment, should Jacob have married Rachel when he's already now legally married to Leah? Like, in a sense, was it okay for Jacob to have sister wives, taking into account Laban's deception, and Jacob's innocence in the matter. Now, we can all understand and sympathize to a large extent, right? That Leah was not the woman Jacob loved. Uh, Leah was not the woman Jacob had any intention to marry at all. 
And yet, even with that in mind, I, I believe that he should not have then married Rachel as well. I think that's wrong. Uh, to begin with, polygamy was never God's intended blueprint for marriage. In Matthew 19, verses 4 through 5, Jesus reiterating the Genesis account says that God made them at the beginning male and female and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, singular. And those two shall be one flesh. Polygamy was always, always wrong. Additionally, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus appears <laughs> to even point out kind of the fundamental problem behind polygamy. He says that no man can serve two masters. If there was a silver lining to marry sister wives, at least Jacob only had one mother-in-law. Now, while this fact alone could have been enough for Jacob to not have married Rachel, consider another aspect that's often overlooked. Like, which of these two women did God want Jacob to marry? Like, have you noticed in the text so far, the story that we've read, what's oddly absent from the narrative there is no mention at all of jacob praying of him seeking the lord consulting god about who to marry marrying rachel he doesn't he doesn't eerily like like god is totally absent from every aspect of the story i'm convinced that while jacob wanted to marry rachel it was really god's plan all along for Jacob to marry Leah. Yes, it's true, Laban wasn't seeking the Lord either. His deceit was wrong. However, I believe God providentially uses this situation to ensure Jacob ends up with the right woman, the woman he needed, not necessarily the one he wanted. And tragically, instead of trusting God, instead of adjusting to a new life with Leah, Jacob makes a mistake. He marries Rachel as well, and he creates a toxic and dysfunctional home life. Let's just take a little glimpse into this. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord surely has looked on my affliction, and this son will make an incredible sandwich. I'm just kidding, I added that. That's really not in the text. Now therefore, Leah says, my husband will love me. So she conceived again. She bore a son, another son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a third son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. The boy had good genes. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Look how brutal it must have been for Leah. Knowing, knowing that she was unloved by her husband. That had been terrible. And what's more, not only being unloved, but seeing your younger sister, Rachel, being preferred. 
Like how depressing it must have been knowing that Jacob has only married you and your father had only uh, hatched this scheme out of, out of trickery. He'd been swindled. That's the only reason he married you. That had to have been depressing. Leah and Rachel, they were innocent parties. This was Laban's deceit. And yet at no fault of their own, Leah now finds herself in a marital relationship with a man who not only show, failed to show her affection, but was openly passionate and, and in love with another woman who happens to be her sister, who happens to be a total knockout, while she's delicate on the eyes, your heart breaks for Leah, doesn't it? And yet, seeing her plight, looking down and understanding her situation, we're told that the Lord looked compassionately upon Leah. And we're told the Lord opened her womb so that she could bear children to Jacob. And in turn, at no fault of her own, we're told that her sister Rachel was barren, so she wasn't having kids. It, you know, it's powerful, but as you read through this, this section of Scripture, you can feel, like in the, in the text itself, Leah's deep emotional longing for Jacob to love her. Like with the birth of each son, Leah hopes and she prays her husband would finally come to love and, and cherish her, would show her affection, and yet with each time, nothing seems to change. That said, until you have the fourth son, Judah, at which point Leah declares, now I will praise the Lord. And there are really two different ways that you can read this. First, it may be that after bearing Jacob four sons, each in an, a failed attempt to garner his affection, that Leah here, after you know another trial and error, another swing and miss, that she just kind of, at this moment, comes to peace with her situation. Like, it should be pointed out, and I really find this amazing, like her use of this word Lord, and note, it's capitalized, capital L-O-R-D, meaning that it's the personal name of Jehovah, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. Leah was a pagan living in Mesopotamia and Haran, and yet she had come not only to have a relationship with with the God of, of her husband, the true God. But she had this connection with her maker. Like there's little doubt that Leah had recognized God's presence in her life, that he cared for her. In fact, Leah even affirms the reality, the Lord has looked on my affliction, has passed his, which tells you what, what God heard her. She was a woman of prayer. With each of these sons, she's dealing with this really toxic home situation. She wants to be loved. She wants affection. And she's coming to the Lord. And she has this relationship with God. And she's praying, Lord, look favorably upon me. And God keeps giving her son after son. And she's thinking, maybe this will be the time. And it doesn't, but she keeps going to her knees, requesting the Lord. In addition, this notion of praise means that she was a worshiper. She prayed and she prays. Well, true, that Leah here after the birth of Judah may have just come to trust God with her circumstances, that she had found her love in him. There may also be a second reason that Leah declares, now I will praise the Lord following the birth of Judah. 
Some scholars believe, and, and I'm convinced of this myself, that between the birth of Levi, the third son, and Judah, the fourth, that Jacob's heart had begun to soften towards Leah. The theory is that, is that she, at this point, finally started receiving love and affection, what she so deeply longed for from her husband. Now, though the Bible is unequivocal, that Jacob in initially loved Rachel more than Leah, there is a strong scriptural case that can be made that over the course of these few years in Haran, that Jacob, that he learned to love and appreciate Leah as well. Maybe even more than Rachel. In a way, you might say that Jacob married the beauty, but with time he grew to love the beast. Aside from the evidence of this text, while on his deathbed in Egypt, Genesis 49, verses 29 through 31, were provided a really interesting detail that substantiates this idea. We read that Jacob charged his sons. So he's on his deathbed, his family's around him. He says, I am to be buried with my fathers in the cave where they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And this cave had been purchased by Abraham. So he's like, that cave that, that, that grandpa purchased where he and grandma are buried, I want to be buried there with them. Also, this same cave is where Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, are buried, my mom and dad. And then he says, I want to be buried there because that's where I buried Leah. How interesting. Not Rachel. At the very beginning of their relationship, Jacob lamented the moment he woke up and found, after cons consummating his marriage, that he was laying next to Leah. It was the worst day of his life. And yet, by the end of his life, the desire of Jacob's heart was to be buried with Leah and not Rachel. Jacob wanted to, to rest with her until the final resurrection. In the end, Leah, the beast, became his beloved. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait a second, Pastor Zach. Are you saying that Jacob should have stayed married to, to, to Leah, even though he didn't love her? Yes. <laughs> I know that goes counter to everything you think within our society. But yes, he should have stayed married to Leah, and he should have not married Rachel. Realize, because of theories like Miss Fisher's, which claim physical attraction and emotional compatibilities are what's essential to love. In our culture, we have developed the incorrect notion that the key to a successful marriage is finding the right person to marry. That's not true. Then, because sexual desire and chemical feelings that result from the relationship in our brains become the primary drivers for the marriage union itself, we end up, again, in our culture, tragically overemphasizing being in love over a commitment to love. And it's on account of these fundamental misconceptions that none of us should be surprised that the majority of marriages fail when and why. I can't tell you how many counseling appointments where a marriage is dissolving because one or both of the parties claim to no longer be in love anymore. Like, please realize, this strange love story 
of Jacob and Leah, it blows this conventional wisdom out of the water. It's like Duck Dynasty on a duck hunt. You see, what this story teaches us is feeling love isn't nearly as important as choosing to love. As a matter of fact, one is just a shadow of the other. Leah loved, and with time, Jacob came to love. You know, when it's all said and done, I believe this story illustrates a much larger reality we'd be wise to consider, whether you've been married for years or you're planning to get married soon. In a real way, every person married ends up marrying two different people. You marry a Rachel and a Leah. Like on one side, there is Rachel, who represents the person you fell head over heels in love with. Rachel represents the part of your spouse that you've always been attracted to, that it's easy to get along with, the person you thought you were marrying. The beauty. But on the flip side, Everyone also marries Aleah, who represents the part of your spouse that was a surprise. Because, you know, you were so drunk with love when you were getting married, you were oblivious to this part of their personality until it was too late. The beast was veiled from view, only to be seen after you began your life together. And at that point, the I do becomes a what have I done? And inevitably the day comes when you roll over and you see this person for the first time and you think, I've been tricked. On May 19, 2007, I became the luckiest guy alive when I married Jessica. Seriously, I not only outkicked my coverage, but I was fully aware I got the better end of the deal. My dad was pushing me the last few months. Lock that down, son. You're not going to do any better. He's right. My bride was a true beauty, compassionate, gracious, meek, tender, (laughs) and she loved me. That was enough. After exchanging vows, I whisked her away. We left to honeymoon in the Dominican Republic. To our dismay, it took one day in the Caribbean sun for Jessica and I to get ourselves burnt. Like clearly, the SPF 4 tanning oil we had lathered up with did its job A little too well. We were Kentucky Fried Chicken, man. Well, I was uncomfortable. Poor Jessica, with her middle American Iowan skin, (laughs) she took the brunt. By day three, it was clear that she had sun poisoning. And I say clear because her forehead had swelled to the point that she was, you know, more brain than pinky. Her forehead had swelled so large that you could press your fingers into it and it would leave an indention. Frightening. And to make matters worse, on our return flight home, the fluid from her forehead, it it moved south. Gravity. Settling around her eyes. Get the mental picture. Her eyes are, are swollen. And she's lost all definition in her nose. Her nose has disappeared. We're standing at baggage claim at Hartsville-Jackson 
airport, and I'm literally getting dirty looks and stares as if I was some kind of wife beater. It was terrible. Four days before, I had truly married the beauty. But now, I was forced into loving the beast. Praise Jesus, hallelujah, that two days of Benadryl reverse the effects. In closing, what do you do? What do you do when the beauty you married reveals some beastly aspects of their personality you didn't know existed? What do you do when the Rachel you believed you were marrying becomes Leah? Like for starters, complaining doesn't change your situation. It didn't for Jacob. Self-pity doesn't do any good. The blame game isn't helpful. As a matter of fact, there's nothing you can do to change the ugly. Like Leah, that's who they are. But consider, what was it that changed Jacob's perspective of Leah? What caused him to love her even more than Rachel? Our text indicates that Jacob began to love and appreciate Leah when he saw the fruitfulness in his life was coming from the relationship he had with her and not the one he had with Rachel. (laughs) It's a tough pill to swallow, friends. You see, more often than not, God will use the ugly traits in your spouse to force you to grow spiritually. That's what marriage is, man. It's, It's two square pegs hitting each other a lot. And it's those pointed edges, man, that just get you. They can be frustrating. They can be difficult. It can, it can be ugly. It's not pretty. Choosing to love. But man, when they start over time, what happens? Two square pegs begin to round themselves out. That part of your spouse that grates on you is what God ends up using to make you into the image of His Son, of the person He wants you to be. You see, choosing to love Leah will inevitably make you a better person and a better spouse. But the sad thing is that problems rise to the surface in a marriage when instead of of working through your frustrations and choosing to love Leah, you resent her or him. As opposed to making the choice to love in spite of that ugliness. I've heard it said you can focus on the thorns on the rose, or the rose amongst the thorns. Flip the script for a moment. Of all the people in our story, he was ugly. It was Jacob. All excuses aside, he was ugly. Ugly to Leah. And yet, what does she do? You know, instead of resenting her husband, throwing a pity party, Leah decides to love Jacob anyway. She refuses to give up. And she took her cares to the God who cared. And in the end, I love it, Jacob's heart softened. He began to love her. How? As a reciprocation of Leah's love for him. Yeah, shouldn't we all be grateful? That Jesus does the same with you and I. 
The Bible tells us that we love him because he first loved us. His love melts our heart of stone. You know, as his bride, let's be real, man. Let's be honest. There's a lot more beast than there is beauty in us. And yet, aren't you thankful Jesus loves us anyway? Loves us through the ugly? Marriage is incredibly difficult. And it's difficult because God instituted this ideal before sin entered the human condition. Sin messed it all up, man. Really did. Two people becoming one. That whole concept was before the fall. And yet, my friends, anyone can love the beauty. That's easy. But the only way your marriage survives is when you're willing to make the tough choice to also love the beast. You know, it should be pointed out, in addition to being the mother of Levi, whose descendants would become the, the priestly tribe of Israel, the stock of Leah's four son Judah, the son that, that the four son she has with Jacob, Judah, Judah's tribe would become the, the kings of Israel. <laughs> when it's all said and done, how was Jesus birthed in this situation? Was it through loving the Rachel, or was it through Jacob's relationship with Leah? You see, from Judah would come the messianic lineage of Jesus, manifesting through Jacob's relationship with Leah and not Rachel. Beautiful thing. Friend, let me say it again. Real, genuine, lasting love. It does not exist as an emotion-yielding reaction. If that's all it is, you're along for a roller coaster ride, man. It's fickle. But is your love a willful action? Do you choose to love and then turn it yields emotion? Never forget the basic framework of I love you places love as an action. I love you. And if I'm in love with you, I'm actively loving you, you're actively loving me, and together we're in this thing, both making a decision. And man, sometimes you're feeling it, because man, there's Rachel, but other times you're not, because man, there's Leah. But you've got to keep persevering. Love. It's not an emotion-yielding reaction, but a willful action that yields emotion. You know, you can choose to love anyone. Jacob had zero physical attraction to Leah, and on the surface, they were not compatible. But as a result of Leah's decision to love Jacob anyway, over time, Jacob learned to love and appreciate this woman that God had placed in his life. Sometimes you, you marry the beauty, but you'll always have to learn to love the beast. So, Father, Lord.